Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion. On this podcast, we learn about recent discoveries of species that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We ask scientists how they found these new species and why they matter. We learn about what makes a new species and hear some behind-the-scenes stories along the way. So join us as we explore the biodiversity of our planet and the scientists who help us better understand it. Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion, and I'm here today with Dr. Justin Bernstein, postdoctoral fellow at the University of Kansas Center for Genomics. He's here today to tell us about his paper in Volume 110, Issue 3 of Ichthyology and Herpetology, in which he and his co-authors describe a new species of homolopsid snake, or mud snake. Welcome, Justin. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Your paper's title actually states that it explores undescribed diversity in a common group of mudsnakes. So what are mudsnakes and what is this diversity? Yeah, so <laughs> these mudsnakes are this really cool uh, family of snakes. They're also known as homolopsid snakes because they're in the family called homolopsidae. And there are now 57 species after this paper just came out. But it's a pretty small family of snakes that are distributed from South Asia, from Pakistan, all the way into uh, Southeast Asia, mainland and maritime, into the Greater Sunda Islands, Wallacea, all the way to um, Australia and New Guinea. So they're a really wide-ranging group, but they have a really incredible uh, amount of diversity and variation within this group. And they're called mud snakes because most of the species are often found in uh, muddy terrain and environments like mangrove systems, tidal flats, and uh, rivers, streams, and lakes. And are they sort of uh, mud-colored? Yeah, they're not the prettiest of snakes. Um, There are (laughs) ones that have really intricate, like, black and white marbling patterns, or maybe some red and rust patterns, uh, black with, like, orange flecks in them. But for the most part, they're kind of, like, olive green, or, like, tan, or dark brown, or black. So they're not the most charismatic species. But there are some really cool (laughs) ones that have, like, appendages that come off of their face. You know, there's some pretty sweet sweet species in there okay wow and what do they do in those wetland areas so uh they are primarily going to be probably hiding in mud lobster mounds depending on the species we're talking about but they are uh most of these taxa are feeding on fish or fish and amphibians there's one group that feeds on worms um but if you were to see a homolopsis snake, you'd probably just see it kind of like either chilling on top of a tidal flat or a mud flat or resting beneath the water. Um, and, you know, every time we find these guys, that's usually what they're doing. Just relaxing. Just yeah, they're just, they're just relaxing. Some of them have some really <laughs> neat behaviors, too, that are not seen in any snakes in the world. And these are some of the only snakes that will rip their prey apart into pieces before eating them. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's like only three species out of the 57 of homolopsids that do that. Um, wow. Yeah, and there's, you know, some, uh, they're, they're considered mildly venomous. Uh, most of them have these rear fangs that wouldn't impose a danger on a person if they got bit, but, you know, to their small prey uh, could incapacitate them. And then 10 of the species actually don't have any fangs and are uh, don't have venom as far as we're concerned. Um, so, yeah. It's, you know, a pretty, a pretty interesting group that we know very little about. 
the work that I've done is kind of uh, continuing work from really three, uh, you know, one late researcher and two current researchers that are kind of looking to have someone do more, uh, you know, techniques that we've been using the last 10 years for phylogenetics and systematics. So we group together uh, and, you know, pushing forward on what we know about their evolution. Even from the little that you've just said, it's a small group, but it has a lot of diversity. I guess I would give a little bit of background. So a lot of these snakes are found in uh, natural history museums from previous collections. In 1970, uh, there was a man named Coco G who was actually at the University of Kansas, and he did the first uh, like revisionary assessment of homolopsid snakes, looking at, um, I believe it was actually over a thousand specimens. And based off of their morphology, because we weren't sequencing DNA at that point, he kind of did a revision of this group, talking about their diversity, potential biogeographic patterns. And then John Murphy and Harold Voris, who are, uh, who are associated with the Field Museum of Natural History, and Harold Voris was the previous curator, um, would go out into the field. They did a lot of field work, a lot of collecting, bringing specimens back to the natural history museums or leaving them in the countries of their natural history museums. Um, and primarily, we're looking at morphology as well, dabbled a little bit into DNA work, um, but they weren't doing uh, a lot of the, they weren't using a lot of the types of methods that we use now. And so, uh, yeah, so they had reached out, we continued uh, this work, and I had also done a little bit of collecting in the Philippines. Um, I do a lot of homolopsid wide work with the types of studies that I do uh, using their DNA using natural history collections, getting loans from museums, but I also do some focus work on the homolopsids that are in the Philippines. So we've done some field work there. Uh, I'll be going there in 24 hours. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, and then also my other collaborators have done field work in Thailand, Cambodia, uh, a variety of other places. And so, you know, they've all kind of pitched their resources in together. And, you know, that's kind of how some of these papers, especially this new one that just came out, came about. We've talked to a, a variety of herptologists on this podcast, uh, and it seems like catching herps, catching snakes versus catching lizards, um, sometimes even catching different groups of snakes requires a particular skill set. So what does it look like to actually go and catch these homolopsids? Well, these snakes are nocturnal, so um, you need to... You'd be surprised that even with flashlights, it's pretty easy to miss these guys because they look like the terrain. Um, again, these guys are really dull and drab in coloration. Um, and they're in hard-to-reach areas. Even if it's during the day, it's pretty hard to navigate through a mangrove. But I would say if there was a skill to have, it's just kind of like toughing through it because you are going to be kind of like <laughs> wading through rivers that are like waist-high with your gear and trying to find, you know, these different snakes. So... Um, yeah, you're laughing. Was that? Um... Yeah, that was last month. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, some of the ones that we actually had one where we were uh, in this, um, we were going up this stream. And it was like the steep incline. <laughs> and I was looking for these snakes. Um, you know, if there if there's a stream, they are you know, they might be nearby, by the way, sorry for the dogs barking. But anyways, uh, yes, yeah, so we were going up the stream. Um, and somebody kind of like, somebody yelled something, I couldn't really make out what it was. Did, did they find a snake or something like that? And it turns out that there was um, a wasp nest uh, on the stream. Oh. <clears throat> but the incline we were on is like was like really steep. There's like trees that had fallen. I, uh, <laughs> 
I didn't panic, but, um, you know, I definitely <laughs> backtracked a bit. And then I kind of like tossed myself like 20 feet down this embankment um, with sharp rocks. And then uh, the one thing that stopped me was a tree that had fallen over that was like face height. And I just like smacked under the tree. Um, <laughs> so, you know, uh, sometimes and it's like, yeah, I don't know. It never fails that like something interesting does happen. And you're and you're about to go out again. You're yeah, about to, about in to less go than twenty four hours. Um, yeah, I, I I love all organisms. I think things that swarm make me a little nervous. And every single time we're in the Philippines at night, you you find these bees. Uh, and it's also you have to turn your lights off because otherwise they'll swarm your head. So it's pitch black. You don't know where to go. There's sometimes nowhere to go. And also, if they sting you, you can't do anything because if you smack it. Uh, you'll release more of the pheromone that make more of them attack that spot. So, um, oh, yeah, we've had some pretty funny encounters or, you know, being on boats where like, you know, it's going out towards the ocean and then the engine dies and you kind of just got to hope for the best or make your decision if you're going to jump off the boat. <laughs> okay. So if there are any hymenopterists listening, uh, maybe they can give you some tips for the next time you go out into the field. Once you have collected these snakes, uh, do you take them back to museums or your institution to compare them to previously collected specimens? Yeah, yeah. So we compare them to museum specimens. There's actually been um, quite a few, actually not even quite a few, there's been a lot of home lapses that have been collected um, over the years. Some of these ones are from the 1800s, which they weren't in, um, you know, not this recent study, but there's been homolapses collected all the way from the earliest specimens that I have are from like 1810. Um, and then there's ones that have been collected like, you know, within the last like one or two years. So uh, typically what we would do is we would sequence DNA from, you know, more specimens that are more within the last five, 10 years. We have the DNA from them. We have the morphology. We have samples that we can look at in natural history collections that have been deposited and then we can get, look at other specimens where there is no dna for them but we can still compare the morphology and see how that compares across populations and so in the study that we just did you know we have um you know we have like 90 or actually maybe even be over 100. We've looked at a lot of uh, specimens and sequenced the DNA of a lot of specimens. And then there are certain populations. So, for example, ones from Taiwan that were collected more, uh, you know, a couple of decades ago that we don't have DNA for. And so what I can do is I can sequence DNA from the recent ones and compare them to those ones where we don't have DNA for. And ideally, you want DNA for all these things because morphology and DNA are two different data types. but you could still you could still draw some strong conclusions based off of both of those different data types, even if you can't combine them together. So um, what I was able to find is in this one study that for this new species we have, the specimens that are in China, specimens that are in like Taiwan and near this uh, this large biogeographic barrier that's a river called the Red River. Um, those specimens are, they look a little different from the other populations of the same species, but even though they look different, genetically, they are more closely related to each other than other species. In this study, so you're looking at the sort of evolutionary history of this genus, and you have this new species, and then uh, you found out some other interesting things about the group, is that right? 
Yeah, so one thing that's really interesting is we have this this genus, uh, so the name is Hypsoscopus. It used to be known as Anhydrous, so in a lot of natural history museums, um, this name Anhydrous will come up. And so Hypsoscopus is distributed from mainland Southeast Asia into the greater Sundas. Uh, so, you know, you'll find this on Borneo, Sumatra, Java. And then it also is found all the way up to Sulawesi um, of Indonesia. And so there's three species. There is Hypsoscopus matinensis, which is endemic to the island of Sulawesi and maybe some smaller satellite islands around it. There's Hypsoscopus plumbea, which is um, widespread from Sulawesi. So it's also on there. And then throughout the rest of the range. And we thought that it was just the two species but some of my previous work had found that there might be uh, diversity that we haven't formally described yet. <clears throat> and this is something that was noted a while back um, with some of my collaborators when they were looking at these things. And they're like, yeah, actually, we have data from 10 years ago, but it's just kind of like falling off the wagon. We don't really have someone to work on it right now we're looking for someone to revive this project. And it sounds like you've kind of discovered your own stuff. Would you want to take the lead on this? I'm like, yeah, like, cause I want to, I want to actually investigate this. And so <clears throat> basically what we found was that that wide ranging Hypsoscopus plumbea is actually two species. And at the Korat Plateau in Thailand, um, around that plateau, you find a pattern in which there's this kind of split in the relatedness of these organisms. And what we find is that from the plateau and around it and north is this new species, Hypsoscopus murphii. And then from the plateau and around it and south is Hypsoscopus plumbea, the one that we were originally calling both of those populations or species. Um, so this Korat plateau, when you see like a major biogeographic barrier that is kind of somewhere uh, in the middle of the ranges of you know, two species, you can kind of start to form some hypotheses that maybe the formation of that barrier was responsible for splitting these populations initially millions of years ago. And based off of uh, divergence dating analyses, which were done in another paper, um, it looks like that that may be what's happening. And we actually have some work that is following up on this. So, you know, it's not just about describing new species, but you also can uh, investigate the evolutionary processes and geological processes that may have given rise to the diversity that we see today. That's really exciting. It is fun stuff. So your new species is Hypsoscopus murphii, um, and it's named after someone. Yep. So um, I mentioned his name before. John Murphy was one of the, you know, he's been working on homolopsis for decades. He's written, you know, him and Harold have written so many books together uh, or so many papers together. Um, you know, John Murphy wrote a book in 2007 called um, Evolution in the Mud. Uh, you know, it's all about homolopsis snakes. And so um, one thing that I really wanted to do is I wanted to name a species after him because he has contributed so much to um, not even just the known diversity of this group, but he's also contributed to a lot of research on aquatic snakes. And there are species and genera named after Coco G, um, that man I mentioned from University of Kansas, who had that 1970 publication. And then there are also species that are named after Harold Voris. Um, so there's a genus called Geophis, 
um, there is, um, you know, there are specific epithets with, uh, that are Vorisi for Harold Voris, but there's nothing after John Murphy. And so I wanted to, uh, dedicate this to him, uh, not just because it's a homolopsid snake, uh, but also because he's been kind of a mentor to me. He's passed down so much of his information and data, uh, and trust in working on the group to me. Um, and, uh, I just had such great, uh, collaboration and connection with him. And so I dedicated this to him. Did he find out when the paper was published or did you tell him? I told him just, <laughs> so I was just like, yeah, like, I don't think anybody would be like against it. But I was like, I would want to know if you'd be okay with me naming this after you. And, you know. He said it'd be honored, and then, you know, I, like, didn't say anything until it was published, and then I shot him an email uh, as soon as, like, the publication came out. I was like, hey, this is dedicated to you. Thank you for everything you've done for me. You know, look forward to more in the future, and he was very happy. So That's great. And he said it brought, and he said it brought back a lot of fond memories uh, working on the group. So it, it was a good, pro good project from beginning to end. Oh, yeah. It sounds like it. These snakes are uh, really important for their ecosystems. They're some of the, in some aquatic freshwater or freshwater systems in Southeast Asia, they're like the densest part of the vertebrate biomass in these systems. And they're really important for like predator prey cycles. Um, they can be, you know, used as a uh, water, you know, for like, as like water quality, um, your signs of water quality. Some of these snakes are found in only freshwater systems. Some of them are found only in brackish water systems. And so uh, they're likely going to be very important to being used as a bioindicator. And they're also, you know, they're also sold on markets all over the place. So um, typically when we talk about conserving species and their importance, we kind of tend to focus on the charismatic species. And uh, again, these guys are not super charismatic. Um but they can be. And so I always like to tell people like why I like study these guys. It's because they are really important, likely for mangrove systems, which are disappearing and are a huge ecosystem service. Um, and also they're just like critical components to the ecosystems. And there's other plenty of other reasons why I think they're super cool in terms of an evolutionary uh, <laughs> angle, but that could be for another time. No, that actually, that actually kicks directly into my question. We have a lot of species. Like, why is it important to continue to find more? I mean, I'm curious uh, also if you think that there are a lot of new species of this group because they're so hard to find. Um, but yeah, so what do you think is out there? And then why is it important to keep going? Yeah, um, so, uh, you know, different groups of snakes and different species and even different populations, uh, they serve their own purposes, which I guess you can kind of look at a hierarchical level. You know, you can have like these snakes that it's like, yeah, it's like, all right, there's like now 57 species, but like what's 57 in the grand scheme of like close to 5,000 species of snake worldwide. And it's like, well, if these snakes are the dominant, uh, you know, biomass vertebrates in these systems, that means they probably hold a very important role of those systems and keeping like crust uh, crustacean, amphibian, fish, all these populations in check. Um, you can scale that upwards towards humans. And if this is all really important for the mangrove systems and the functioning of mangrove systems, mangroves have been estimated to be worth um, over one or $2 billion in ecosystem services. And with global climate change getting worse, we know that storms can wreak havoc in different parts of the world. And so you can either scale it up to being really important in terms of ecosystem services, 
uh, you can keep it at the level of species and just their importance and just, you know, I think I, I think without any reason, just considering species is the right thing to do. Um, or if you scale it down to the population level, you know, you might have a widespread population, but one population is contributing really important genetic diversity for the stability of the entire species. So, um, you know, that I would say that's why it's important. And in terms of what else I think might be out there, um, homolopsids have been they're not as well studied as other groups, but in terms of the populations and their distributions, those are pretty well known. Um, and it looks like, you know, I'm sure there's undescribed diversity out there. You know, I'm, I've seen photos where I'm like, I don't really know what that is. And even John Murphy, who's looked at like thousands of these things over decades, has been like, yeah, I don't know what that is either. It looks like a combination of these two genera or these two species or maybe something new. So. Um, I definitely think there are new species. I don't think it's going to be one of those things where it's like, oh, there's probably like, you know, at some point the count's going to go from 57 species to like 150, you know, I don't think it's anything like that because we've got pretty good sampling of populations and that's at least a good preliminary look at uh, genetic diversity as well as morphological diversity, but you never know. And uh, I do think there's at least like a couple new species out there. Well, maybe uh, maybe you'll be back on the podcast. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I'll let you know. <laughs> Hit me up if there's any new publications of homolopsids. Yeah, definitely. Justin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. Always happy to talk about science and always, always happy to talk about snakes. Justin Bernstein's paper, Undescribed Diversity in a Widespread Common Group of Asian Mud Snakes, can be found in Volume 110, Issue 3 of Ichthyology and Herpetology. See the episode details for a link to the paper, and to learn more about Justin and his work, you can follow him on Twitter, at JustBernstein. You can also check out his website, JustinBernstein.org. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Species Podcast. This podcast was created by Brian Patrick and is edited and produced by Zoe Albion. If you would like to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash newspeciespodcast. And if you'd like to get in touch with questions or feedback, please email us at newspeciespodcast at gmail.com.